Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome to the Transfer Window, the podcast that brings you the news before it becomes news as well as insight and analysis into everything you're talking about in football. I mean, McGarry, and with me, as always, is Duncan Castles. Today, we've got a Your Questions Answered podcast, which, of course, will combine news as well. And, Duncan, a lot of speculation and talk about Nicola Pepe, his form, his rather stupid red card last weekend as well. And we've got a question from Tom Sharman, who is right on the whistle here with regards to his inquiry, which is, Hi, Duncan. Where, why has it gone wrong for Pepe? I remember you and Ian recommending him as a top signing for a number of clubs, and many, myself included, thought he'd be brilliant. Be good to hear why you think it hasn't happened for him yet, in brackets. Duncan, I'd like you to start off with this because you've had some good information from a contact at Lille and when Nicola Pepe was there, and I can then add into that afterwards. Yeah, I I think we should talk about the contrast in his performance first. What brought him to Arsenal was an incredibly impressive record at Lille, which forced a lot of clubs in Europe to look at signing him. And, uh, you know, those clubs included Liverpool. There was contact with the agent. In that case, he eventually went for 80 million euros, record fee for Lille, record fee for Arsenal. He had scored under his previous coach at Lille, Christophe Gaultier, 33 goals and uh, been credited with 17 assists in 62 games for that team and was part of the reason they made it to the Champions League. Very much the forefront of the attack and I think this is a factor here. Um, Lille identified him as a player they could build a team around in, in many senses, but certainly an attack around and fed Pepe and Pepe delivered for them. Then he moves to Arsenal. He played 16 games under Unai Emery, his first coach there, three goals and four assists. So going from 157 minutes per goal to 315 minutes per goal. And then under Mikel Arteta, Seven goals and seven assists in 36 games now he's played under the replacement coach. And that's roughly the same scoring rate, 322 minutes per goal. This season, before that red card, which came for a headbutt on on Gianni Alioski and which was very much condemned by Arteta, you know, calling it unacceptable, saying that at this level you cannot do it. And then being asked whether... Pepe would apologise and saying, you know, it depends on the player. It's unacceptable. I I will deal with the player, which I think also is another hint there as to the issues with Pepe, which we'll discuss later, that he's saying it depends on the player. So this season, he started just two of nine Premier League games, been used in eight, scored just once, just 278 minutes total playing time. 
Of the 21 players Arteta's used in the Premier League this season, Pepe ranks 14th in playing time. Now, that is not what you would expect of an €80 million Euro signing who was brought in to reinvigorate Arsenal's attack and, and brought him as the centrepiece of their, of their um, transfer planning uh, the summer before last. I asked someone at Leo what he thought had gone wrong for Pepe and he said the issue for him is with the character of the player, the personality of the player. He said that if he is made to be the central focus of a team, if you build a team around him, if you make him the star of the team, then he can respond in the way he did at Lille and be unplayable in some circumstances. He said if he's not the central focus, then he becomes very inconsistent. He has question marks over the player's mentality. says that there is a large entourage around the player, which can get into an individual's head in terms of having too many individuals speaking to you, having comments on criticising other players in the team or, or criticising the coach's decision, not getting you to focus on your own performance. And, and in that entourage, the agent, I'm told by people at Lille, is quite a difficult individual to handle. So I, I think if you take that description from someone who knows Pepe well, and was involved in getting the best football of his career out of him and involved in getting his price up to the level that Arsenal paid and place it against what's happened to him when he came to Arsenal. So coming into a not particularly convincing Unai Emery team, then seeing Emery change for Arteta, getting a significant chance under Arteta, but failing to make himself fundamental to the attack. Seeing Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang, who many had thought would be leaving Arsenal when his contract expired and, and there was a lot of um, investigation on Aubameyang's part as to whether better options were available for him before he signed that new contract at Arsenal and put it into the context of where Pepe was before, the status he achieved, the plaudits he received in France for his performances. You can imagine what people around him were, were saying about how he'd developed as a player. He gets this massive contract from Arsenal, record signing, the expectation that he will be the central part of the attack there, and it hasn't happened. And you place it with a, a manager who is demanding, who does not revel in free spirits. Um, I think you can see a, a pathway that Pepe has strayed from and got himself into this this current situation. Just just one thing to say on that red card. I think Arteta is correct in the stupidity of it. Obviously, it was provoked during the game, but it is the first red card of Pepe's career, which again I think talks to the mental place he's in at this stage of his time at Arsenal. I think that's very true, Duncan. I've been speaking to people at Arsenal over the last two or three days following this seemingly destructive path that Pepe has been taking with regards to form, fitness, and then, of course, the red card against Leeds United. And um, they've been quite open and said that uh, the player himself uh, has not integrated into the club or into the dressing room as well as they would have hoped or expected. That his attitude certainly and his mentality 
have been poor, not just in games, but on a daily basis in terms of training, that he does not appear to like or indeed approve of Mikel Arteta's training methods, which are demanding and quite rigid, both physically and mentally, something which, of course, he learned from his mentor, Pep Guardiola, who demands everything from his players in training. And that has caused Nicola Pepe problems. Uh, he's very much a free spirit with regards to the way he's used to playing, expects to be treated a little bit differently for that reason. He's not treated differently. He's not given any leeway with regards to discipline uh, or otherwise. And his response to that method of training, to that way of being in a team, has been lacklustre and certainly not what Arteta expects. It's also been the case that, as you said, Duncan, people around him who will never criticise him, it's always going to be, it's not your fault, Nicola. It's other people's fault, whether it's the coach or your teammates, etc. And that's quite a common mindset for players who aren't getting the playing time or the success that they either are used to or believe that they deserve or should be getting. So it's unsurprising that he has effectively turned off to a degree in terms of his application. I think you're right in saying that as a player who is Arsenal's record signing, who is clearly capable of quite sensational moments of play in terms of goals, and we've seen glimpses of it with Arsenal, but certainly never in consistent ways with Pepe in terms of week in, week out in games. And Arteta is a kind of, in his attitude towards players, is a little bit of a throwback. He is quite a disciplinarian. He won't tolerate players stepping over the line in terms of not taking instruction or being tactically unaware or unwilling to be tactically disciplined. And that's what's caused problems for Pepe as well and for Arteta. I think interestingly, and I'm not drawing a parallel, but I think the language is probably going to be similar in the next couple of weeks when Arteta was asked why he left Mesut Ozil out of his Premier League and Champions League squad, he said that he had failed in trying to get the best out of Ozil. So he turned it back on himself, but in effect was saying, well, I've done my best to get the best out of Mesut Ozil, who's clearly, I don't want to say a world-class player, but certainly there are thereabouts. So I failed in trying to get the best out of him, but clearly there's fault on both sides. I expect that we'll be hearing those words or similar from Arteta in the next few days or weeks about Nicola Pepe. However, it doesn't mean to say that as a coach you can give up on players who are extremely expensive and very valid and valuable assets to the club just because you think their attitude is so bad that you can't train them and you can't get the best out of them in terms of games or game time either. Just doesn't quite add up. As a coach, that is your job. And with Pepe, he's obviously a lot younger than Ozil and um, surely has you know a lot of ambition in his life and in his career that he wants to fulfil. And yet, he finds himself in a situation where he's in a rut and he's clearly not enjoying his football. And that has become an issue 
for Arsenal, who absolutely need that kind of creativity. Their inconsistency as a team has been the scourge of their season so far. They have been brilliant in some games and dreadful in others, especially the defeat to West Ham United. And they need to get this sorted out. Now, I guess if you're an Arsenal fan, the question you're asking is, is it the coach or is it the players? Because there's got there's some there's some kind of disconnect there, whether it's with individuals or whether it's with more than one individual with regard to getting the best results and the best out of the talent that they have, because they're clearly a talented squad. So, and then of course there was the um, incident last week, Duncan, with um, David Luiz and Danny Ceballos, where there was a training ground spat and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. These things are clearly instances of frustration boiling over into even just a training session. Now, look, you and I have been in football long enough to know that these things happen on a very regular basis on training grounds, but the problem becomes greater and invidious when it's about what's happening on the field of play when you play games, the lack of results, the lack of positivity, the lack of good performances and players start turning on each other, pointing fingers of blame. That's your fault, it's, you know, it's this fault, it's that. I think that's one of the problems that Arteta has to address and sort out very, very quickly. I think, look, it's complicated for Arsenal because you get situations where you have a player signed with one coach, one manager in charge, and then the, the club makes a radical change in manager and he does not fit that new manager scheme. There are elements of this with Arteta for the reasons you've explained, because Arteta is similar to Pep Guardiola in the way he wants to dictate the positions in which players operate on the field, the way in which they pass the ball, the way in which chances are created. And obviously that's not a great fit to the Nicola Pepe that Arsenal signed. Obviously you can also change a player if you if you coach him and get into his head to and persuade him that your way is better, players will respond, as we've seen at Manchester City with Pep Guardiola. But with Guardiola, he's always been doing it with the best squad of players in the division. Everywhere he's worked, he's always had the best material. Therefore, the chances of winning games are higher because you tend to win games anyway. And it's easier to convince players that your way works when they see the rewards of trophies and of silverware. Arteta's doing it coming into an Arsenal squad that were struggling beforehand. He bought himself a lot of credit by winning a trophy last season. But if you look at the recent results of Arsenal and you look at them from Nicola Pepe's perspective, they've played eight games in domestic competition and won just two of those in normal time against Manchester United, against Sheffield United. They also beat Liverpool in the League Cup on penalties. Their wins have been in European competition in amongst that run. So three wins in the Europa League, all of which Pepe started in. So from Pepe's perspective, when he's playing the team's winning, albeit against weaker opposition, and when he's coming off the bench, the team is struggling. So this conflict and this division of opinion and the way he should operate is not as easy for Arteta to hold up because he is under pressure because of the results he's delivering by being this strict in dictating 
the way the team plays. You're also looking at a manager who's inexperienced. A lot of clubs wanted Arteta. Everton wanted to bring him. He was first choice for Arsenal. But they were doing that on the basis of he is a player with a good reputation at both of those clubs in the past. Had a reputation as being a top coach because of the success he was having with Pep Guardiola. He hadn't managed before, so there is a learning process going on with Arteta in terms of being the man who makes the final decisions. When you look at what he is credited for by players he's worked with, they talk about the detail of his coaching on the pitch, the kind of technical qualities he is able to add to their game. Managing an entire squad, being the the person who has to make the decisions over who plays and who plays where and when they play is a different level of responsibility and every manager has to learn to do that well. It is a, a learning process, a curve where mistakes will be made. And if you start a team like Arsenal, you're under a lot more focus than you would be elsewhere. Another factor, I think, with this situation is you haven't just got a managerial change at Arsenal. You've got a change at almost every level, executive level of the club. The recruitment team that brought Nicola Pepe into the club are gone. The de facto director of football, Raul Sanyehi, who made that transfer happen, is gone, as well as the manager who was in place when he was brought into the club. So that, that that's a lot of factors where if you just change the coach and, and a director of football is still there who signed the player, then the director of football has a lot more invested in an 80 million euro signing with a big salary that he persuaded the club's board to go for than when, as in Arsenal's case, Edu has now taken far greater control of the, of the operations, is de facto in charge of transfers and is not as directly associated with Pepe as Sanyehi would be. So again, that support, that tier of support, which can be important when you're adapting to a new country and you are hitting those problems, which a lot of players have when they move to the Premier League for the first time, when they move to any big league for the first time. If you have, the more allies you have in the club, generally the easier it gets. When, when you have a number of individuals who are not directly invested in your performance, you have to battle harder. And then you go back to the testimony of the people who knew him at Lille, who, who question whether his mentality is such that he responds to that situation in a positive manner. And also with Arteta, because he's a new head coach, as in this is his first job as head coach, it's not easy for someone like Mikel Arteta to walk into a dressing room and immediately command respect. His playing career was very impressive, but not stellar. His coaching career was as number two to Pep Guardiola. Again, impressive, but not stellar. So in order to get players to believe in you, you have to get results quickly. As you said, he won the FA Cup. That helped a lot, but there will always be players in a dressing room who will look at the coach and think to themselves, well, you're not really that good. And that's why we're not winning games. And unfortunately, that does affect the dressing room mentality with regards to how they respond to training sessions, to tactical uh, decisions, to team selections, etc., etc. And that will always be a problem for a coach until he does prove himself or does go on a winning streak and the players then believe in him. Because as we know, 
with all of the elite coaches, the first thing they say is, if you do what I tell you, then we will win football matches. And then, of course, if that transpires to be the case, then the faith is there, the trust is there, and usually it works out quite well. So I think for Arteta, there is a bit of a difficulty there when they are performing and underperforming and being very inconsistent. Yeah, I don't, I don't want to say Mikel Arteta is another Pep Guardiola because he's not, he's his own man. But there are definitely elements in the way he coaches and manages that have been influenced by the way Guardiola works. If you talk to people who have played for Guardiola, they will tell you he is one of the most demanding coaches they've experienced. He fatigues them, mentally fatigues them in the, the degree of his demands. He's also quite distant from the players. It works for him. There's no doubt it works for him. You can't, you can't question the, the balance of the results over the time he's worked in football. But it's kind of an, a, mo a modern, aggressive way of being a manager. Uh, it's not the, the Alex Ferguson style, but it is tiring and demanding on players. And you only get away with it, as you say, when you get results. Arteta's doesn't have the track record and he also doesn't have the advantage that Guardiola had when he moved from Barcelona B to the full Barcelona team, which was he brought some players with him from Barcelona B into the first team squad who had worked with him, who appreciated the results that his methods delivered and were able to say to the, the guys, the, you know, the rest of the first team squad, the established first team squad, listen to this guy. He knows what he's doing. It works. Arteta doesn't have that. And that, I think, is a, another difference on top of the fact that when Guardiola moved from Barcelona B to the Barcelona first team, he had the most talented squad of players, arguably, that any football club has ever had. He had great material to work with, certainly better material than Arteta has at Arsenal. We will be moving on to a very good question about Pep in a few moments' time. But we want to just squeeze in a bit more news for you guys to do with Leicester City, who, of course, are riding high in the Premier League table. And Duncan, it's concerning a player who actually has been kind of in and out, but also is impressed when he's been in, Damari Gray. Yes, very much pushed to the fringe at Leicester City. I think if you have the opportunity to put some money on a, on a transfer happening, in the next window, but more likely in the summer window, it would be Damari Gray to move out of Leicester City. Since Brendan Rodgers came into the club, he has had very few starts, Premier League starts. He played 21 Premier League games last season um, under Brendan Rodgers, but only started three times. He was basically used as a substitute off the bench um, for half an hour in a game. That was the standard method to replace one of Leicester's wingers. This season, no first team football at all. This past week, he was sent down to the under 23s to play, scored twice, two quite impressive goals, and, and certainly put plenty of effort in, which you don't always see when a, when a first team player is uh, sent down as a punishment to the reserves, effectively. The feeling is that. Gray feels because he has refused to sign a new contract at Leicester City, because he will be a free agent in the summer and in January will be allowed to negotiate deals with any club um, on a pre-contract basis, that he's been set aside and will not get proper playing time at Leicester. I'm told he's not particularly happy about that. 
but it does not look as though it's going to change his thinking about his future. Where does he go? Well, he's 24, former England under 21 international. He has a huge amount of pace and he can finish. I think there'll be no shortage of suitors for Damari Gray. You see these days Premier League clubs quite often have problems with matching their homegrown ratio and having enough homegrown players in their squad to meet Premier League and European rules. There you have a player available at no transfer fee cost who can help sort out that problem. I'm told that at Leicester, they believe that he will be moving to Tottenham Hotspur. My understanding is there is an interest from Tottenham, but that is not a guaranteed deal. He has interest from other Premier League clubs. There is also significant interest overseas. Decision will be made as to where the best opportunity to develop his career is going forward once he's in a position to properly talk to the clubs and and decide where he moves next. But I think uh, a bit of a disappointment for Leicester City that they haven't been able to capitalise on on Gray's potential, uh, especially with a coach like Brendan Rodgers there whose reputation and one of the reasons that he came to the club was that he developed younger players and, and got better out of him. Rogers himself talking about what happens with Gray going forward in September said it'll be up to him. He's in his last year and he hasn't signed another deal. But for me, I will always respect Amari and what his wishes are. He's working very hard to play a part while he's here. We'll see how it evolves over the course of the season. I think we've seen how it's evolved and the under-23s isn't the way that, that Gray was hoping it would evolve. Not the first time, Duncan, that a player who is uncertain about his own future and therefore apprehensive or indeed not interested in signing a contract at a club where he's not getting game time is effectively shoved out of the uh, mainstream squad and you said played with under 23s it's a way of just saying well yeah if you're not interested in being here in the future then we're not interested in having in the present but a bit unusual when you've got a very good talent and you could be utilising him for the time that he is with the club. But again, that sometimes can be the manager, but it can also sometimes be the club who are hoping that a little spell playing underneath his level might change his mind, let's just say, about possibly negotiating a new contract, at least, especially as they would lose out in terms of transfer fee for the player should indeed he leave for free next summer. So we did promise you we'd be going to talk about Pep Guardiola and the transfer market. And of course, uh, one of our favourite monikers on questions is Murder on the Dance Floor, which I always like to think might be uh, related to the Premier League Highlights programme that they show in France. And I don't know if any of you guys have ever seen it, but it's actually called Match of the Day. So it could be Match of Zidane's Day or something like that. Anyway, only if Real Madrid were involved. (laughs) And Murder on Zidane's floor has asked us, Duncan, would you agree that Pep Guardiola is a flawed coach in the market? Feels like he's fantastic at helping players see inherits to get better, but when it comes to spotting a player to sign and then fitting that player in, it rarely works out quite as well. I think if you look at Pep Guardiola's track record in the market, you'd have to say that Murder on Zidane's floor's proposition is, is supported. He's certainly at the at the first stage of his career at Barcelona with that 
squad we were talking about earlier made some horrendous errors in the transfer market. Uh, Zlatan Ibrahimovic probably being the principal one of those. Buying Zlatan Ibrahimovic from Inter while turfing Samuel Eto'o out of the club. So giving Inter a massive transfer fee for Ibrahimovic and then giving Samuel Eto'o, who became central to Jose Mourinho's treble winning Inter team and the team that knocked Guardiola's Barcelona out of the Champions League that season was uh, was uh, probably the worst of his transfer moves. At Manchester City, we've talked on this podcast before about the issues with the defensive talent that he's wanted brought into the club, brought into the club and over half a billion euros being spent on transfer fees alone on eight goalkeepers, fullbacks and centre-backs during that period. These are just the more expensive deals he's done and still ending up last season with a defence where he only trusted one of his centre-backs and I think still not having solved those defensive issues this season either. As we said at that time, I think part of the issue here is not simply with the identification of players, it's the system that they're brought into play and I think you see more of the errors being made with those defensive signings. And I think those defensive signings are more exposed because of the way he wants his teams to play with a high line. He often puts passing ability as a more important factor than pure defense ability in, in asking for a centre-back or a full-back. Americ Laporte is a great example there. Laporte's very important to the way his team plays. He's a great long passer of the ball in particular but is prone to making defensive errors and we're still prone to making defensive errors in big games and we saw that last weekend against Tottenham Hotspur um, getting sucked into uh, a Harry Kane move towards the ball when Tange Ndombele was playing Son in who, who should have been Laporte's man Ruben Gias had Harry Kane under control, but that move by Laporte allowed Son in and allowed the first goal to be scored. And the first goal in these big games is of huge importance and against a Tottenham team that were as committed and as well organised and as good on the break as that team are, it put City on the back foot. You know, we've seen that from Laporte before. We've seen it in matches against Liverpool. We've seen it in important Champions League games. And yet he is the, the still the centre-back that, that Guardiola trusts the most. So I, I think he does have a, an issue spotting talent. And I think another good example of this is what we heard him say about Harry Maguire after Manchester United signed him. And we'll take Guardiola at his word and what he said. And sometimes Guardiola is not to be taken at his word. You know, this famously is the man who says he's never coached his team to tactically foul when every single team he's ever used is dependent on tactical fouling. And we have video evidence of him coaching them to tactically foul and the evidence of the testimony of his, of his uh, assistant coaches that he does that. But he said that he wanted Harry Maguire and that City weren't able to meet the transfer fee that Leicester City wanted at the time and, and Manchester United got him. If, if Guardiola genuinely wanted Harry Maguire as his main centre-back signing uh, the summer before last, that tells you he's a very bad identifier of talent because what we've seen from Manchester United, who don't play anything like as high a line as Guardiola does, is that 
Maguire is always exposed by pace. He's positionally suspect. He's a, he is a very good passer of the ball, which is probably why Guardiola liked him. He is confident on the ball and good in the air. Again, traits that, that Guardiola likes. But he would have been a catastrophe, in my view, in a Manchester City defence, worse than he has been in a Manchester United defence. So I think our listeners spotted something there. He does have an issue with his with his identification of talent, but then that's not his principal concern. He's the coach and there are people above him who um, should be in a position to veto when he says, I want that player. And they say, well, actually, that's the wrong one for your system. How about this one instead? I wonder, Duncan, if there's a wider issue here, a much more personal one. Many of Guardiola's players, former players, have talked about him as being a complex person and could be a difficult personality on a day-by-day basis. I remember one ex-Barcelona player telling me that they would do double sessions and in the morning Pep could be rays of sunshine and joking and laughing with everyone, the staff and the players, etc. And then by the time the afternoon session came, a sort of darkness had descended upon him and it seemed like nothing was good enough and he he would be extremely um, hard on the players in that session and it it was literally night and day. I think his capacity for emotional empathy has been something throughout his career which has been in question. Now, man management is an extremely important part of coaching football players who really all they want is to feel loved and be part of the team and feel like they are in a situation where they have every opportunity to express themselves, both in game time and training and everything else something that we touched upon with Nicola Pepe earlier in the pod. And with Guardiola, that doesn't come naturally to him, even though his validation to players is extremely important because he is this elite coach who has won everything in the game and players will respond very well to him telling them they are great and this and the other. But that doesn't come naturally to Guardiola. And I'm just wondering if when we talk about Pep not being able to spot players or when he signs them, and I'm thinking in particular maybe of John Stones, who was at one point the best young defender in England coming through at Everton. And then he goes to Manchester City. Yes, he had some injury problems. He had some personal issues, et cetera, as well. But I can't help but wonder if a different coach or even an assistant coach, if they had one who could be naturally empathetic towards Stones, could still get the best out of what is a very naturally talented footballer. And so I just think to myself, well, you know, when people say, does he pick the wrong signings or is he just not very good at spotting players, et cetera, et cetera. I wonder if that's got an element to it as well. It's possible that's an element too. And I think that will be amplified by the position he's been at, particularly at Manchester City, with the the most expensive squad in the history of the game, more invested in, in player recruitment than any other club ever. Guardiola's found himself in a position where if a player doesn't work, whether it's one he has asked for or not, he 
can go in a way that probably no other club manager has been able to do to the owners and say, that one has to go or that one is now second choice for the position. I need a better one. So if you have that emotionally distant coaching style, which Guardiola, by the testimony of people who worked with him, certainly has, and you have a struggling player, whether that is for reasons of adaptation, bad luck, or he's struggling to cope with your particular tactical demands, then probably you have less incentive to come up with a solution. And you can, rather than do the hard yards of talking to the player and sorting him out and focusing him so you get better performances from him on the training field, so he understands what you want on the pitch, understands a methodology which clearly works when it's implemented and applies that. Instead of that, you just say, well, let's cash in on this one and move on to the next one. It's probably not a great combination and probably makes Guardiola look worse in the transfer market than other managers because he simply doesn't have to, or certainly for the time he's been at Manchester City, he hasn't had to be as good. Barcelona, he didn't have to be good because he had such a naturally talented squad. Bayern Munich, he didn't have to be good in the transfer market because they had a better squad than every team in Germany and were always going to have a better squad and are very good at recruiting themselves and have an established fashion and pattern and strategy for doing so. So unlike other managers at other clubs, it's not as important to Guardiola to be efficient and good in the market and therefore he probably isn't as efficient and good in the market because his energies can afford to be focused on the things he are is really good at, which is the tactical and the technical training side of the game. Very true, and that gives us a nice segue, Duncan, into our final question of today's Transfer Window podcast. And it comes from Carwin Williams, who asks, how would you explain the process of transfers? Is it the manager who gets sole responsibility of who he wants to bring in? Or does the scouting network advise which players to go for, or both? Are clubs now hiring top head coaches to get the best out of what is given to them? Varies by club. There's no one size fits all. And if we're looking at the Premier League as a point of focus, there are different strategies from different clubs. Famously, Manchester United have never, ever hired a director of football, despite talking about wanting to hire one and saying that was important to improving their their you know gross underperformance that we've seen over the last few years. I think it's fair to say that in the reign of Sir Alex Ferguson, he had first and last say on every single transfer. But when he retired in 2013, it's completely gone the other way. Yeah, Ferguson had first and last say, but he had a limited budget to work with. If you looked at it over his period during the time the Glazers were in charge, he effectively had a £20 million net budget each season to work with. So very different to the, the, the spending once Ed Woodward came in as executive vice chairman and once Woodward got his hands on that transfer budget and and started to to have a big influence in the negotiating and, and the buying process, you know, the focus that Manchester United have on, for example, individuals with a big social media profile because it, it helps boost those social media numbers that Richard Arnold likes to talk about when they're actually doing investor calls, which of course they've, they've stopped using the pandemic as a reason not 
to do them and not to explain the um, the big losses and the continuing dividend payments to the Glazers that they've retained. But I think in the Premier League these days, it's very hard to see a manager who, who would even want sole responsibility for who they bring into a club. It's the scouting and recruitment of players has become a far more complex and competitive process than it was when Ferguson was doing that at Manchester United. You need more individuals and you need to have individuals around you who you trust. I think it's also a fluid process within each club as to the degree of influence a manager has. So you have periods in which a manager can have a lot of authority over transfers and maybe the club has a recruitment staff who the manager says, I, I need a new centre-back. The recruitment staff is charged with, with presenting a number of names to them. And then the manager has the, the final decision on which one he wants the club to go for and the club have to, to implement that deal. But if his status falls, you get to a situation quite often in clubs where they decide actually we're not going to buy that player because we're not entirely convinced that you're here for the long term in our view we're not entirely happy with the way you're coaching the team we do want to take advantage of this transfer window we do have budget to spend so we're going to buy a player that we our recruitment specialist thinks in the long term interests of the club rather than the one you want and um, you're just going to get on, have to get on with it and use him and produce results. Otherwise, we'll, we'll bring another manager in to, to coach him instead. It remains a very difficult balance for any club to meet well. We talked at the beginning of this podcast about Nicola Pepe and the issues Arsenal have. I said I don't think they're unconnected with the fact that the director of football and the coach have both changed in the period since Pepe came to the club. Certainly... Coaches and managers will tell you that they want to have a sports director they can trust and and have faith in who delivers good players to them. It makes their job a lot easier, but by no means does it always happen at every club and or happen consistently at every club in, the, in English football and top tier English football. Football transfers is not an exact science. So let's break this down, Duncan. A head coach stroke manager has a meeting with his administrative staff, i.e. chief executive and recruitment staff. He says the positions that he wants uh, or needs to fill in any particular window. He will have ideas himself as to who he would like to get, which he will suggest. But what will then happen is everything goes to the data analysis team and they feed in what kind of player left foot, right foot, good in the air or not, quick, doesn't have to be quick. Is he going to be able to pass long, mid or short range, etc., etc.? A whole host of different things. Sometimes it will be a bespoke algorithm for that particular club. Not always the case, but often it is an algorithm and a software um, which has been built particularly for that club. Then that the sign, the data analysis comes up with suggestions as well as data on the players who the manager or head coach has suggested. It goes back to the recruitment team who then basically analyze video or in some cases, but decreasingly the case, 
go and watch those players or the manager sends scouts to go watch those players and compile manual notes, which they then put into a report and send to everyone on that email list. And then they have another meeting about budgets and what they can afford and who may or may not be available and what happens. They then identify the players that they want to pursue. Usually this will be between three, maybe five of those players that have been recommended both through recruitment and data analysis. And then they go back to the same committee made up of chief exec, recruitment staff, manager, coaches, et cetera, and say, right, here are options. What do you want? What should we do? And then things go forward. It's a very complex process compared to what used to be the case, as I mentioned about Sir Alex Ferguson, where he would simply send his brother, Martin, who was their chief scout for many years, to watch a player who he had decided he wanted. And then Martin Ferguson would provide Ferguson, his brother Alec, with a report on those players. And I'm thinking in detail, I was told many years ago that when they were looking for a new goalkeeper, Martin Ferguson scouted David De Gea, Stecklenberg, who was then at Ajax, and Manuel Neuer at Bayern Munich. According to Martin Ferguson's report, the goalkeeper who was by far the superior was Manuel Neuer. However, Manchester United went for David De Gea, who Martin Ferguson said was too small and would not be necessarily the best goalkeeper to play in the Premier League because of his stature and size. Now, okay, you could argue that that's been proven wrong over the the seasons, but at the same time, that's what happened then. That's not how it happens now, obviously. What happens is what I've just described. So when it comes to Carwin's question regarding what the process is, the process is a lot more detailed than perhaps football fans believe or think that it is because modern football is trying its best And of course, uh, Duncan, as you well know, this kind of goes back to Fermi Sports Group and the Moneyball philosophy that they employed at Boston Red Sox, where everything was done by scientific data and algorithms in terms of buying uh, baseball players. Uh, And then they then applied that to Liverpool Football Club as well. Yes, and and effectively leverage their financial power to bring success to Liverpool Football Club. But they coupled data analysis with a strategic decision to target players who they could actually get. They went for the mid-tier of the market where they knew that if they put large offers in, they could take players from clubs like Roma and get them to Liverpool, Southampton famously, and put in a coach who fitted the kind of system that they wanted to build initially They had a lot of failures in in the transfer market and a lot of conflict between the recruitment department and the manager when Brendan Rodgers there with a great deal of issues over players that Rodgers wanted and the recruitment department said no to. Players the recruitment department wanted and Rodgers said no to. But they've refined that and, and it works well for them. But you also have to say they've done it with one of the biggest growth spends The net spend hasn't been so high because they've sold really well, but one of the biggest growth spends and one of the biggest increases in wages 
of any major European club. So they have had a lot of firepower to work with, which obviously the majority of clubs don't have. I still don't understand that when um, Brendan Rodgers recommended they buy Leo Messi, they said no. It just puzzles me. (laughs) I think his granny told him that. Get that Messi boy, son. He'll be fine. This has been the first Transfer Window podcast of the week. We will be back on Friday. However, we will finish off today's podcast with Hero and Villain. And I know my hero is Duncan, but I'm going to ask you on the spot, do you have a villain? We've just mentioned Liverpool and he's been a villain at Anfield in Liverpool not that long ago. At the weekend, he was a villain in Manchester at Old Trafford. So that would be David Coote, who was the VAR (laughs) in the game uh, where Virgil van Dijk had his ACL ruptured. Was supposed to be VAR for Leicester-Liverpool match at the weekend, but was taken off for operational reasons and inverted commas. Did the Manchester United-West Bromwich Albion game on Saturday and and I think demonstrated why Liverpool have so many questions about him as an official. Certainly if you look at the way Slavin Bilic described what he did in that game, saying all those crucial decisions went against us. You have a penalty where Bruno Fernandes kicks into Conor Gallagher's leg, possibly just gets a, a toe to the ball before he hits Gallagher. It's difficult to see, even with the video evidence, whether he gets the ball before touching Gallagher, but goes through him. Cook gave a penalty in normal time, watches the screen and decides to uh, overturn his own decision on the recommendation of the VAR. I think quite ironic that the VAR was so influential in his own decision in that game. Then, not long after that, Fred fouls Gallagher clearly just outside the Manchester United box. Coote ignores the foul. A handball, one of the controversial, but according to the current rules, correct. Handball decisions is given uh, against West Brom. They get a penalty, completely turns the course of the game. Bruno Fernandes' penalty is saved and then allowed to be taken again by the VAR. Nothing to do with Coote there. But I think a clear villain of the week in the way those two decisions so close to each other completely changed the course of a game which which Manchester United were again struggling against mediocre opponents from the sense of their results so far this season in a in a home match. Only the forty-four penalties in the last one hundred and twenty-seven games, Duncan. And another one last night in the in the Champions League. Oh, 45 and 28. That's quite a ratio. I think it's interesting, and if anyone's not actually watched it back, just have a look at Kut when the penalty has been taken the first time. He is looking in entirely the other direction. Now, that's fine because he's got VAR to back him up, and it's definitely the case that the West Brom keeper moves off his line before making the save. But I don't understand because that's what his assistant is there for, is to check for encroachment. So he should be looking at the penalty taker and the goalkeeper. So that just seemed very unprofessional to me in the circumstances. That penalty is interesting because it flags up an advantage in Bruno Fernandes' penalty technique, this hop that he and Jorginho take before hitting the ball. And I think if you watch their penalties, you quite often see that the goalkeeper responds to the hop because it's such a dramatic move and, and starts jumping in the same way as they would respond to the kick. And that is kind of buying Bruno Fernandes' insurance under the new rules. Yeah, Even if I agree, the goalkeeper Duncan. saves, it's going to be retaken. 
I was listening to Rob Green talk about this, the former West Ham and England goalkeeper. And he said, as a goalkeeper, instinctively, when you think the player is going to kick the ball, you begin your movement. And if that hop or that pause comes before, then you automatically move. And whether or not you can keep your foot on the line or not is debatable. I do think it's a bit of a flaw in the new rules. I'm not sure why FIFA and IFAB have decided that a goalkeeper can't move a certain amount off of his line because it's such a natural motion to make with regards to getting yourself in position to try and make a save. So all the emphasis is then on the goalkeeper to not move making it easier for the penalty taker to score. When really, as every coach I ever played under said to me, you can never miss from 12 yards. Simple as that. I think it's just another example of IFAB not thinking through rule changes and we've seen that. And not talking to players about it as well. Yeah, and we've seen it with handball. We've seen it with so many of these new rule changes. And and obviously you, you combine that with VAR and you use VAR to judge whether a goalkeeper's moved off the line and you can do it to a fractional level so you're going to end up with a lot more retaking penalties just as because of this idiotic handball rule we're ending up with a lot more penalties to start with i thought kevin de bruyne's comments after the tottenham game were very interesting when he he was questioning that the handball decision that went against gabriel jesus when city appeared to have an equalizer in that match and said look i've been a professional footballer for 10 years but in the first period of my career the the rules hardly changed now i've lost track of what the rules are. i don't know what the rules are anymore they've changed so much and paraphrasing here i don't understand who is making these rule changes because they certainly aren't people who are involved in playing the game well something we can start a campaign for they seem to be quite trendy these days duncan maybe we should have a transfer window campaign to have players consulted on rule changes with IFAB. It's going to be interesting um, to see what IFAB said about that. And controversially, I'm going to nominate Manchester United's normal penalty taker as my hero of the week. And that's because Bruno Fernandes against Basakishia in the 4-1 victory in the Champions League. When he was on a hat-trick, he explained after the game that he had made a promise to Marcus Rashford that he should take the penalty, should a penalty be given. So instead of taking the penalty himself and doing his hop, skip and jump thing, (laughs) he did give it to Rashford. So the man who has put dinners on the tables of over 3 million underprivileged kids at least got something handed on a plate to him for a change. (laughs) (laughs) We should say after that discussion about the problems with VAR and the penalty kick rule, you have to credit Bruno Fernandes with the intelligence of using a technique that gives him the insurance. It's, it is clever on his part. I think you're, I think the insurance tag is actually really accurate, Duncan. It does give insurance because they know that the keeper will move. So should they miss, then they get the second opportunity. And obviously that is what happened against West Brom. But again, IFAB didn't take that into consideration when they decided to change the rule where the keeper was allowed to move off his line. But then again, we shouldn't really be too harsh on this because David Marshall clearly moved off his line in that game against Serbia when saving the uh, crucial penalty that put Scotland into the Euros and guaranteed that you'll be here joining me at Wembley. 
That has been today's Transfer Window podcast. We hope that you have liked what you've heard. And of course, if you have, please leave a five-star review on iTunes. You can subscribe to the Transfer Window podcast on YouTube. Also, please turn on all your notifications and you'll be first to hear when the new podcast is available. You know, we love to hear your opinions. You've heard your questions today as well. We love to engage with you. And of course, that means that we all get more fun from the podcast. So please join the discussion with us on At Transfer Podcast on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. Duncan is at Duncan Castles on Twitter. I'm on at Garbo SJ. So please continue the debate after the podcast. We will be back with you on Friday. Until then, stay safe, be well, and thanks for listening. Hey.